The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Amplifier Advisors, LLC, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now your host, Jonathan Aberman. six months, I've had a number of in-studio discussions about technology, particularly the web and social networking. We've looked at its role and development from various angles, and it's pretty clear that what might have started out as something that was hoped to improve our society is actually raising significant challenges. Recently, Richard Levick, who's with us in the studio today, shared with me something that was causing him significant disquiet. I brought him into the studio today to talk about the dark side of social media, instantaneous communication, and he's brought with him two guests to share their own stories. Steve Nardizzi, formerly the CEO of Wounded Warrior Project. Great to see you. Thanks for having me. Simon Newman, formerly president of Mount St. Mary's University. Thanks for being here. Pleasure to be here. And Richard Levick, chairman of Levick. As always, thanks for being here, Richard. Thank you, Jonathan. Well, Richard, why don't you tell our listeners what we were talking about uh, the other day and why this is such an important issue for us to be thinking about. You know, Jonathan, it's always great to be on your show because we know it's only going to take us seconds to get into Plato and Socrates. Uh, but here we are, and Plato and Socrates poised the question to us uh, millennia ago, which was, is the death of democracy too much democracy? And we're testing it now. Now that we all have our own soapboxes, we're on the Internet and have this ability to communicate with each other. But rather than seek our highest selves to seek out mercy and understanding and listening, we're much more about cancel culture and accusations. And I'm afraid that we're finding that the difference between mob rule and democracy is the rule of law. And when we stop being civil, when we stop abiding by rules, we get to this time and age and moment where it is so easy to destroy people's lives and careers. Is that democracy or are you talking about technology? It's really hard to determine what the difference is right now. You know, okay. do we actually have the right to vote anymore? And that question has come into fro since the 2016 election, and we're worried about that in uh, 2020. The uh, folks over at Turbine Labs talk about the fact that since logarithms are what creates the Internet, are we in control when we get to the keyboard or is the machine in charge of us? We wonder is do we really know what we're thinking or does Facebook and uh, the other big Silicon Valley companies know so much about us already that we have no independent thought? Yeah, but he, what we're talking about today is how these particular platforms uh, allow for uh, – people to get in the middle of situations that have a, a tremendous and rapid adverse effect on their livelihoods. And so, Simon, I'll, I'll ask you, I, I know that this has been your life experience recently. What what happened to you and what what, what was it like being part or subjected to this phenomenon? 
Well, it wasn't fun. <laughs> so my, my story started, I was elected the 25th president of America's second oldest Catholic university. I was hired by the board because they were looking for a non-traditional leader to help turn it around. It had failing fortunes. It was uh, lose, it lost money for most of the last decade. It had junk bonds. It had three times the level of debt that was considered prudent. It had declining enrollment and a discount rate that was above 50%. So uh, it was a challenge, but I loved it. My background was in turning around and revisioning companies. And so we got a lot done quickly. Uh, we started five new programs in uh, high growth areas with the help of some really good faculty. Um, we got a deal done with Cambridge University. So we're going to teach Cambridge courses in America, which was a, a great prestigious uh, thing for the university. I uh, spent nine months negotiating an, an MOU to have the largest donation in the university's history, which was well over $100 million worth of assets to be donated to the university, which would have provided a transformational donation. So, but we're not here today talking about what, frankly, right. knowing my my own academic background, that was, that's a tremendous track record of successful university presidents. Mm. So why are we not talking about success today? Why are we talking about something else? When you make changes in an organization, particularly something uh, as old as a university, uh, the people who have power, the old guard, get upset. So I was uh, attacked by a group of professors and their agents who came from the worst performing departments in the university, philosophy, modern languages, mathematics, and history. And uh, I, you know, this, this started with uh, gaslighting, uh, making it very difficult to do things, hiding the ball, constantly coming up with accusations of wrongdoing internally, um, and eventually escalated into having this toxic narrative put into a student newspaper that was fed to these students, which claimed uh, completely defamatory accusations. I was trying to kick out students for struggling, that I was trying to use a survey to figure out which students to kick out in order to goose the retention statistics of the university. Those were all false. So in, to be false. what ended up happening there is, is that the technology, the, the rapidity of communication ultimately allowed a, an echo chamber reverberation of these, these accusations or these statements. Which that's, exa that's exactly right. They put up a, uh, a web page, and uh, Steve will talk later, exactly the same thing, a closed Facebook group where they recruited fellow travelers to use the vernacular of the Russian uh, counterintelligence operatives. Uh, so in active measures, you recruit fellow travelers that believe the same general sentiment and you inflame their passions and make them very active by feeding this toxic narrative of false and defamatory information. Which is something that, you know, frankly, we see in many different parts of our political discourse now in various various places. Uh, Steve, how about you? How did this impact your your career? Sure. Well, my, my experience is very much uh, similar to Simon's. I helped found uh, a charity, Wounded Warrior Project, right at the height of the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, that was in 2003. I took over as CEO, and we quickly grew from a startup charity to one of the largest charities in the country, $400 million, program offices all around the country, helping 100,000 warriors with some really deep programming, mental health programming. We had expertise in employment. Uh, we created a hospital network we were providing in home care. So really, really great programmatic things happening in the organization. And we grew it during the recession. So think about that, going from, from zero to 400 million uh, through the worst recession in history. And then uh, the music stopped when two hit pieces came out. One in uh, CBS News ran one and the New York Times uh, ran one as well. And those stories were generated 
very similarly to, to Simon's experience, from some former disgruntled employees. So you had a number of individuals that after, and this is the way I think social media can get weaponized, after they left the organization, a few of them stayed in touch, created a closed Facebook group, and then began recruiting. So they would look for other individuals that were fired, they would bring them in this closed group, and therein you created this echo chamber of negativity, and then one or two of them were PR people, and they reached out eventually and got a hook into a reporter, and that's how these stories really got legs. After Richard and I talked about this, um, I went off and talked with some people that I know that are involved in the Internet, and their initial response was, well, uh, if there's so much traffic, there must have been something there. How would you respond if you, to somebody who said that to you? I'm very fortunate in that there were a host of investigations, deep investigations that were done after these stories. So there is a nonprofit expert and, and uh, journalist himself named Doug White who actually uh, did a multi-year investigation, wrote a book um, that you know sort of categorized how these stories were made up, all the falsehoods that were carried in the initial media stories. And then there were multiple investigations. Groups like the Better Business Bureau did a very lengthy investigation after these stories came out and said we found no evidence of all of the things that are being claimed here. So I'm fortunate in that I can point to these external validated um, um, reports that say, look, it's not just Steve saying this didn't happen. This really didn't happen this way. Well, I uh, when when these accusations hit in the student newspaper, I actually asked for the board to do their own investigation and investigate me as well. They did, and they concluded that none of it was true. Apart from, you know, I used some salty language. I called a, a professor an idiot, except with perhaps a few old English intensifiers to... Because he was an idiot. <laughs> He'd, uh, he completely mischaracterized a perfectly good program that was designed around preventing students being recruited to the university and being kicked out. They were dis- academically dismissing 30 students around Christmas time each year. Mm-hmm. And I put a program in to prevent that from happening, but then got accused of kicking students out for struggling, which was utter defamation. And, uh, and so I had the board report and then it was investigated by middle states the, even the the cabal that attacked me even got uh, Brian Frosch the attorney general of Maryland to investigate uh, some aspects of this survey that we did it was all above board nothing happened there was nothing wrong there but it didn't get reported in the news that way what you both experienced is not new this is the inevitable challenge this is what happens in an organization. There's always an antibody, but it seems that there's something going on here. The technology is creating an amplification, which is highly troubling. That's what I want to talk about when we come back after the break. to Acuity. Acuity is a leading technology innovator solving big data analytics problems. Check them out today and discover the power of Acuity. And thanks as always to our sponsors. If you want to join them and help support one of the leading programs in the region pointing out the positivity that defines us, please communicate us directly on Twitter at at What's Working DC. 
And we're back with Steve Narduzzi, formerly the CEO of Wounded Warrior Project, Simon Newman, formerly president of Mount St. Mary's University, and Richard Levick, chairman of Levick. Richard, I'll turn to you. Why and how is technology making what, frankly, has always been a situation of people getting upset about change become a, uh, such, a, such a mess? Well, first of all, we've monetized it. We've heard stories from Steve and Simon about how when you make change, you make people uncomfortable. Suddenly, uncomfortable, which used to be an opportunity for us to grow, is now a cause of action. Glassdoor actually monetizes that discomfort. If you leave a company and you didn't like it, you're encouraged to post there. And Glassdoor actually will then go to the companies and say, hey, if you advertise here, we can make sure you get better reviews or the bad reviews go down the page. There we so we've now monetized these complaints too, and I think this is a real challenge. You know, people often ask, well, how do you tell when you have people who are alleging false accusations versus the I'll call them oftentimes self righteous accusers, and that's because the victims are often self aware. What was the mistake that I made? Who you know should I not have used the word idiot in referring to a professor? I wasn't perfect. Should I have been more sensitive during that fundraising? The self-aware are always looking at themselves. The self-righteous aren't because it's always easier to accuse others. And we really have to work on being uh, better human beings. Three, the question is, you know, Mark Twain had said that the truth would make it halfway around, uh, pardon me, a lie would make it halfway around the world before the truth had its sneakers on. And that is so true today that it's very hard for us to include as counseling What's the prophylactic? How can you prevent it? All we can say is what you can do after. It happens too quickly to really ha- be able to prevent it. So, and then finally, I think that you know the, the 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 tool that was often used in the early days of organizing, Saul Linsky, Gandhi, making it personal has now also become monetized. We see doxing all of the time, and that is putting personal information out about people who are not public figures. And that is anyone now who runs a company in any position of authority, no matter how uh, how anonymous they previously were, are becoming public figures. Well, so Simon and Steve, I'll turn to you. Let, let's start with this. What would you ask people to do? What would you ask our citizens to do to when these things occur? How would you like people to react? Take time to read and reflect before you jump on the the sort of virtue bandwagon, right? The self-righteous bandwagon. I think we're all guilty of this at some point, and certainly social media has fueled this. You know, it used to be you'd see something on the news. If it was a horrible story, you might go, that's terrible. Somebody did something awful, but there was really nothing you can do about it. And now I think we all feel inclined, well, we can do something, right? At the very least, I can go out and pop off on social media and say something negative and reshare the story, and then I'm validated for that, right? Somebody comes on and likes my post. Somebody else comes on and likes my post, reshares it. And so we've really trained ourselves to just hone in on those, you know, 140 characters that are out there, the tiny headline, and put it out there. And I think we forget that there is context usually behind the story. And I think we also forget that the people being attacked are real human beings. So they are not just the sort of caricature that they are portrayed in a headline, in a soundbite. Nobody is. Um, They're real human beings. And also... Your posting and sort of inflaming on communications on social media can have real-world consequences. And um, I don't know if, Simon, this happened to you as well, but it, it did not stay on social media. I had actual death threats. I had 
people looking for me coming to my house. There was, you know, police involved. So, so you know, your your sort of activity online doesn't always stay there, and you can really inflame others. And and people need to be more thoughtful about that. Yeah, that's exactly right. And Steve and I both talked about this. I think the the weapon, character assassin's weapon of choice, is something I call a toxic narrative. And a toxic narrative is something which contains a few sprinkling of facts. Um, some salacious past sentence or quote which implies wrongdoing and malevolence on the behalf of bat malintent, um, then statements of outrage which use her as an intensifier. You know, Steve was really off how awful this thing is, you know, this, this sort of language. And then it's this implied explicit or implicit accusation of wrongdoing. That narrative is like a character assassin's weapon because you cannot respond to it once it's in the public domain without talking about the toxic false narrative and the defamation in it. These you need to be very aware of. You don't share them and so forth. So the thing to avoid if you're a a, a listener is premature cognitive commitment. Mm -hmm. It's been lured into sharing and saying, this is just another example of whatever your prior sentiment was and sharing it with your friends. In GRU terms, you know, the Russian influence model, you're being a useful idiot. Mm -hmm. So don't be a useful idiot. Don't share things that are false that just, when you do a little bit of digging, just don't smell right. That would be the best advice I could give. It's, this is so similar to the conversations that we've had in prior shows around the politics and integrity of elections and privacy and so forth. It, it seems to run four square into people get hurt, you know, when, when lies are told. We have to find a way to do what we do in the legal system. Our legal system is designed... A legal system gives people the benefit of the doubt. You have to prove a crime beyond a reasonable doubt, meaning that sometimes guilty people go free. We accept that as a society. It seems like the Internet is now the reverse, not guilty people. Everybody's guilty. And if innocent people suffer, even if a small number of innocent people suffer, that seems to be okay. It leads me to think, Richard, I know you've been giving this a lot of thought. There's got to be or shouldn't there be some sort of policy answer to this? I don't know where policy is going to come from. You know, we have the Chinese model where the government's in control. We have the American model where uh, the Silicon Valley's in control. Neither seems to be very helpful for any of us. But I do think as citizens, we have a responsibility. You know, if you were to identify maybe some Ten Commandments for work on, uh, work on, working on the Internet, communicating on the Internet, don't press send. I mean, let's start with not pressing send and just think about things. Two, let's how about how about thinking about being Buddhist. That is, what is the other perspective? I may have a strong opinion on the impeachment and may not agree with Alan Dershowitz, but I want to understand his arguments. Our epistemology has changed. We want to first get gather information before drawing conclusions. Three, understand what we're doing when we practice cancel culture, when we turn around and say, you're racist, you're sexist, you're, uh, uh, you're Islamophobic, you're anti-Semitic, what we're doing is practicing prior restraint. That is, we're saying nothing that you say has any value anymore because I've already labeled you. you. You need to be looking at these things in terms of how you communicate. The underpinning of democracy is exchange of ideas. And there's always been an understanding or implicit part of societal approach to democracy, that people have responsibility for their own actions. There needs to be some sort of policy approach. When you both dealt with this, were the people online spreading these things, were they anonymous or were they people that were standing behind their statements? I'll speak for myself. Uh, this is Steve Nardizzi. It was, it was mainly anonymous. We did find out who many of them were. We, you know, they had recruited 
somebody into their Facebook group. But there um, was no accountability. There was ab- no, no legal responsibility to Absolutely prove the, the truth of their allegations. We have internet courage where people who would say and do things on the internet because of its anonymity that they wouldn't do if they had to communicate face-to-face. Yeah, Wolfgang Goethe said, uh, a coward only strikes out when they feel safe. And the internet provides anonymity, people uh, as trolls, or they mob. They get a whole group of people together to actually attack someone. That's what happened to me. I was target of an uh, one of the worst academic mobbings there's been in America. And how that happens is people are influenced at the very emotional level. They're sold this toxic, awful narrative. I had a bizarrely uniting effect because I was hated by all ends of every political spectrum. <laughs> I mean, the conservatives hated me, the liberal press hated me, but it was designed to be that way. And I think behind all this, something that I think your, your listeners should know is a tremendous amount of planning by the cabal, the group that attacks you. And Steve and I both share notes on this. We both have perfect records of what happened in HFR case. I had a whole forensic study. They were meeting for months and months, plotting this, collecting a compromat, collecting toxic narratives that they planned to launch. And the phrases used were, the media is in our back pocket. They knew they could get people in the media to write those narratives exactly as they wanted them. And they used students. They used students, put them in harm's way to communicate that to the media. So when you look at this, what should change? This type of attack, what happened to Steve, what happened to me, is mala in se. It is intrinsically evil. You don't need to have a great theory to say you deliberately go out and attack someone's character to get them fired or removed from their office. That is intrinsically bad. And there needs to be repercussions for this. The professors that attacked me and their agents all got promoted. And, you know, Simon, productive people don't have time for all that planning. (laughs) Yeah, right. That is all. So as we wind this up, uh, my conclusion from today is that we have another we have another example of why and how it is that the current structure of the Internet has gone wildly away from the ideological uh, and optimistic view that the creators had. There's no doubt it could be a tool for good or a tool for ill. But uh, clearly we've got some work to do as a society right now to create better rules for the road. I really appreciate the time that you all took with me today on What's Working in Washington. Steve Nardizzi, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having thank me. Simon Newman, thank you. Pleasure. And Richard, thanks for sending us down this pathway and uh, keep it up. It was a great topic. See you in therapy. <laughs> <laughs> See you next time, What's Working in Washington. <laughs> and now, What the Fed with technologist John Cofrancesco. When I first heard about the Wuhan coronavirus, like everyone else, I was scared. But after talking to some expert friends of mine, I'm now confident that we'll be able to take on this challenge, and here's why. The first question I had is, how does America prevent infectious diseases from coming to our shores, and what are we doing now to face this latest disease? As it turns out, the fight against infectious diseases isn't a new one. The CDC, Centers for Disease Control, were founded in the mid-1940s just after the Second World War. Its primary focus then was to reduce and then to eliminate the spread of malarial diseases in the United States. In fact, the CDC is centered out of Atlanta because at the time, most malaria was spread in the South. But the CDC has grown into far more than just an anti-malarial organization. It's a small army now, numbering about 15,000 epidemiologists, otherwise known as disease detectives. They're now stationed in more than 50 countries around the world, 
conducting a slew of different missions. Some of these disease detectives collect animals from distant jungles to define which ones contain the root for infectious diseases. Others provide consultative services for the third world countries, training and enabling their staff to identify and prevent the spread of disease. Here in the United States, members of the CDC are stationed in every state preparing our more than 5,000 hospitals to deal with the potential of an outbreak. But one of the major factors that allows the CDC to so accurately predict the spread of disease are their data models. The advanced mathematical models incorporate various data sources and advanced computational techniques. They're able to portray real-world disease transmission. The data models translate basic data science about infectious diseases into decision support tools for public health. Fortunately, we already have the supporting models for this outbreak. Our fight against Wuhan corona isn't a new one. In fact, corona itself isn't a disease, but rather a category of viruses. Other viruses in this same family that you might be familiar with are SARS and MERS. Because we know how to fight SARS and MERS, we're in a great position to defeat Wuhan corona. The experts at the CDC are using the latest data models and epidemiological practices to prepare our nation here and abroad to fight corona. With the continued work of the CDC and with a bit of luck, next time somebody says corona, the only thing you'll think is, where are the limes? That was What the Fed with technologist John Cofrancesco. We're in our fourth year here at What's Work in Washington, and I and my producer, Tracy Madigan, are consistently reminded of the reason why we started the show. We believed then, and we're sure now, that there are millions of people who get up every day in the greater Washington region and don't spend their time arguing about what the problem is. They actually go off and solve problems. Whether it's in social venturing, not-for-profits, non-government operations, government and entrepreneurial businesses and larger companies, people get up every day to make things happen. And that's what the show is about. 300, 400 episodes strong, we tell the stories that other people should tell and maybe they don't. But you listen to our podcast, make sure you tell your friends what you're hearing and what's working in Washington because together we can push the narrative that D.C. is a place where things happen and people come here to change things for the better, and they do. And thanks, as always, to our sponsors. If you want to join them and help support one of the leading programs in the region pointing out the positivity that defines us, please communicate us directly on Twitter at, at What's Working DC. Thanks to Acuity. Acuity is a leading technology innovator solving big data analytics problems. Check them out today and discover the power of Acuity. Our executive producer is Tracy Madigan, and our web writer is B. Aldrich. Music provided by two local bands, The Sunbathers, and my own band, Two Car Living Room. A special shout out to Marymount University School of Business and Technology. I'm the dean there now, and we are working hard to help our students master business and technology so it doesn't master them. Check us out at marymount.edu. If you have a story idea, don't forget to tweet us at What's Working DC. I'm Jonathan Aberman. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Monday afternoons at 2.30 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.